Psalm 51 this evening in your copy of the Holy Scripture. Psalm 51, as you're turning there, I would like to introduce my message with a simple case study. Carl was a German soldier during World War II. Carl's army unit had been stationed in a Russian village in order to take revenge on a village because of a local uprising. They packed a frame house with Jews, including many children, poured gasoline on the floors, locked the doors, and set the entire house on fire, killing all of the innocent Jews inside the house. Now those memories haunted Carl and he could not escape the condemnation of his own conscience as he lay dying of head wounds in an Austrian hospital. Carl was repentant in his mind and in his heart or at least he wanted to be repentant, you see, but he didn't know what to do or where to go with his repentance and so he asked to speak to a Jew any Jew, so that he could confess the terrible things he had done as a German soldier. And weak though he was, Carl wept and begged for forgiveness from nurses and doctors and anyone who would listen. He could have no peace until he was forgiven. Carl died soon after, the wound and the horror in his heart greater than the bloody wound to his head because he could not find resolution for his repentance. Centuries earlier, long before Carl, there was another man, a man in his mid-50s, a man named David. David loved God and his word, but when he should have been away at war, he was at home on his rooftop looking over the houses below. David saw a woman bathing, and instead of turning his eyes, he lusted in his heart. He sent for the woman, and he committed adultery. Bathsheba conceived, and to cover his sin, King David issued the death sentence of her husband Uriah. We know the story well from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. God used the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin. And like Carl, David was devastated over his sin. He was repentant in his mind and heart. However, unlike Carl, David knew what to do. David knew where to go with his repentance. And Psalm 51 is is that prayer of repentance following his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 can be so instructive to us regarding our own confession and our own repentance and restoration to our right relationship with God. So then according to my records, I preached from Psalm 51. It was a long time ago. BC is what we call it, before COVID, right? A long time ago, before COVID, summer of 2019, if anybody can recall, I preached from Psalm 51 at the time. I titled my message, A Heart of Brokenness. This evening, I prepared a different message, a different title, a different outline, a simple simple outline because I believe that a renewal and reviewal of Psalm 51 can be so helpful for us. So from Psalm 51, a message I've titled, The the Requirements and Rewards of Repentance. Of course, the notes were there in the foyer as you came through the doors. Let me go to the Lord in prayer before we unpack Psalm 51. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you 
for your mercy. We thank you for your amazing grace toward us, grace that is greater than our sin. And Lord, this evening we're assembled as a fellowship, an assembly of of born-again believers who have received justification because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross. We are sure of everlasting life because of his resurrection from the grave. Yet, Lord, we know that we still live in this flesh, and it is not uncommon for us to sin against you as our holy God. And Lord, like Carl, like David, we are often convinced and convicted of our sin. Our minds and our hearts are repentant towards you. But Lord, we often struggle with how to go about expressing that repentance and finding ourselves in right fellowship with you again. I pray that you would help us as we examine this psalm. May your spirit be our teacher now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The subject at hand this evening is is repentance. And unfortunately, the notion of repentance is a bit controversial among some in a number of different ways. First, some would ask, is repentance necessary for salvation, yes or no? If yes, is repentance a work that we must do in order to be saved? If not, does repentance come before or after belief? Is repentance different from belief? And around and around the arguments go. Simply put, I would contend that repentance is a turning. It is a change of one's mind and one's heart from disobedience to obedience, from denial to confession, from unbelief to belief. In Acts 2, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says the people were cut to the heart Think conviction. They're cut to the, the, the heart and they asked, what shall we do? And Peter answered, repent. And so I would submit to you that repentance is necessary for salvation. However, I would qualify that by explaining that repentance is bound up in one's expression of faith. Whereas I did not believe in Jesus, I repented of my unbelief and I am now turning and putting my faith in Jesus. Whereas I trusted in myself, I'm repentant of my self-trust. I am turning and putting my trust in Jesus. Whereas I loved my sin, I am turning from my sin and calling on the name of the Lord to forgive my sin. That repentant faith is what saves. A second controversial point among Christians today regarding repentance is if it's necessary for sanctification. Is repentance necessary for salvation? Is repentance necessary for sanctification? And most would say yes, but the dispute then comes as we try to listen for what repentance sounds like or we look for what repentance should look like. And I believe Psalm 51 answers those questions for us. Let's start with the superscription there. Psalm 51 to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Of course, the the narrative is given in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Our purpose this evening isn't to study that event in detail. It's sufficient to know that David committed adultery. It's sufficient to know that David committed murder until the prophet Nathan came and confronted him in a very effective way so that David now pours out his mind and heart in in this psalm. And, And so I would like to offer the requirements for repentance, the rewards or the results of repentance, beginning with the requirements of repentance. Verse number one, have mercy upon me, O God. We've sung of that mercy this evening. 
Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, when a man or woman of God sins, how does one begin their repentance? Normally, when I sin or when we sin, we immediately in our minds, we prepare an excuse for sin. We, we don't call it an excuse. We call it an explanation. We rationalize in our mind the explanation for why we have done what we've done or said what we've said or thought what we've thought. Our hearts justify our sin. We begin, we begin crafting a defense for our sin so that we can plead our case. And normally, it's a bit of a ramble for us, and we ramble on and on about why we did what we did, and how we feel bad about what we did, and we might acknowledge that it was a mistake, and we promise to never do it again, but we really don't think that we deserve any consequences, because other than this event, we're we're generally a good person. That's not what David did, and that's not how David began this psalm or this prayer of repentance. When the prophet Nathan confronted David in 2 Samuel 12, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. It's really that simple. And then it follows that David's prayer of repentance here doesn't begin with David's excuse or explanation or his defense, but rather David goes straight to the character of God. Namely, God's loving kindness. It's the cassette in in Hebrew, his tender mercies. You see it there in verse number one. We just sang of it. It's the character of God in verse one that is David's only hope for forgiveness. And that's what David needed for the first requirement of repentance is number one, God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Repentance doesn't demand a phone call. It doesn't ask for a lawyer. Repentance doesn't need a therapist or a psychologist. Repentance doesn't try to do damage control or save face. Rather, true repentance desires nothing, requires nothing more than forgiveness from God. So David began with the character of God, the loving kindness of God, the tender mercy of God. Who do you know your God to be? Do you know your God to be a God of tender mercy, a God of forgiveness, of patience and long-suffering, a God who is able to forgive? Verse number two. It's in Psalm 103 that David wrote, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. Folks, this is the God that we know. This is the God that we love and serve. This is the God we can go to with our sin because of who he is. This morning, we gathered around the Lord's table to reflect on the death of of Jesus Christ and to remember the necessary cost of this very forgiveness because of God's loving kindness toward us. I I hope that scriptures are pinging in your mind. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Or Romans 5, verse eight, God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the requirement of repentance is God's forgiveness. But David continues, look at verse number three. For I acknowledge my transgressions My sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. I'm going to offer you a second requirement of repentance, God's forgiveness first. Secondly, man's confession. Man's confession. And God's forgiveness is promised upon man's confession, of course, 1 John 1, 9, another scripture that, that ought to be front of mind this evening. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Notice the character of God, the, just, the justice of God. He, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. And so David's confession now here in verses three through six, and confession is more than admitting the wrong. It's agreeing with God about our wrong. Confession is not just admission, but rather agreement. Many people will admit many things, especially when they're caught in the act. There is material evidence that demonstrates what you have done. Okay, yeah, I I guess so. But then those very same people will stand before a judge in a court of law and plead not guilty. They might say, I admit that I did wrong, I committed the crime, your honor, but I don't agree that I'm guilty of my wrong, therefore I plead not guilty. Not guilty? What is that? How can we admit to a wrong but not agree that we did the wrong? But that's the irrationality of of our sin. David here, he confesses not just in acknowledging the sin, but agreeing with God that, that he's guilty. And furthermore, notice that David doesn't just express the awareness of his sin. There's a contrition, there's a brokenness over his sin. And rather than minimizing what he's done, he heightens the offense. Yeah, I blew it, yeah, my bad. Um, it was a mistake. Uh, yeah, it wasn't my, my best moment. No, David's actually heightening the level of his sin by acknowledging the ultimate offense is not against Bathsheba or Uriah on some horizontal level, but rather against God himself. And then David acknowledges the justice of the accusation and the judgment. Look at verse four again, look at verse four. When you speak, David is saying to God, when you speak, that's the, the accusation or the indictment when you judge, you see it there in verse number four, that's the sentencing and David is agreeing with God about his, his sin to the point where David is saying, God, you are just and what you say about me and what you say about my sin is right and the consequences are, are just and many times in our confession and repentance, it's, it's with a tone of resentment. We did wrong. We got caught, we admit it's wrong, we're frustrated that it was wrong, we're mad that we got caught doing the wrong, we have a bad attitude toward the governing authority, whether it's the officer, or the teacher, or the parent, or almighty God. But in verse five and then in verse six, he goes back to his sin, the depravity the source of his sin is his depravity there. And he, he knows that from birth he has a sinful nature and he realizes that really it's not about Bathsheba and Uriah. It's not about a, a bad day or a weak moment, but rather it's about his depravity, his sin. Not his sins, but his sin. What's the difference? I'll ask you a, a trick question. Perhaps I've asked it in the past Does one steal because he is a thief 
or is one a thief because he steals? Have I asked you this question in the past? Think about it with me. Does, does one steal because he is a thief or is one a thief because he steals? David was not a sinner because he sinned. David sinned because he was a sinner, you see. And that is fundamental to our confession. Oh God, I am a wretch. I am a sinner by birth and by behavior. I am fully depraved and broken. It's not that I just had a bad day with a weak moment and a, a few regrets, skeleton in the closet. I'll do better next time. But God, I abhor myself because I know that I am by nature sinful and fallen. It's a great picture of of genuine repentance here in verses one through six. David's honest. He's open with himself before his God. I marvel that the adulterer, the murderer, David, is considered a man after God's own heart. How can that be? I think we're discovering that here this evening. And a point of encouragement to all of us is that in spite of our sin, God's grace is greater. And when we come to him in brokenness and repentance, that relationship can be restored and we too can be one after God's own heart. In the event that that you must repent from your sin, in the event that you struggle with what that repentance looks like, may I suggest that this is a good place to start. Memorize these verses. Meditate on this psalm. No excuses, no explanations, rather truth about God and truth about oneself. Pastorally, my experience Never mind that, personally, my experience as a, as a man, right, um, is that I, that we, often express, experience worldly sorrow over our sin. We grieve the consequences of sin, the natural consequences, the problems. We regret the, the, the consequences or the problems, and, and we would like a do-over in life just to escape the natural consequences of our sin. And many times, speaking not only as a pastor, but just as a man, we struggle to articulate what is modeled here because we are consumed by the natural consequences of our sin in worldly sorrow. But I would counsel us all to use this as a template for our repentance. The promise, of course, again, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which leads us then to the results or the rewards of repentance. And this is just a quick survey of the psalm, uh, hitting the the highlights here, the, the results or the rewards of repentance. Verse number seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Number one, the first reward is spiritual cleansing. And having confessed his sin, David is now looking for the reward of cleansing from his sin. And he asked to be purged with hyssop. Now what's hyssop? 
You remember in Exodus 12 when God commanded Israel to slay a lamb and to apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintels there of the house for deliverance from that tenth and final plague that was to fall upon Egypt. They were to apply the blood with hyssop. Exodus 12 verse 22. Why hyssop? Hyssop is a medically, it's an herb, it's a diuretic. It purges and it cleanses, I think, We would use the word detox today. Hyssop would later be used by the priests to ceremonially cleanse a house in Leviticus 14. In John 19, the soldiers offered Jesus sour wine or vinegar on a hyssop branch. After which Jesus pronounced that the debt was paid in full. Forgiveness was secure. The hyssop. Then you see there, David asked to be washed whiter than snow. Of course, we know what snow is here in Minnesota, but snow is rare in Jerusalem. At times, snow in Jerusalem, more common in the mountains in northern Israel. But nonetheless, David knew it only took a little snow to cover the brown earth like a beautiful blanket of white. And we enjoy that in October, right? (laughs) We don't enjoy that so much in March or April. He then asks that his sins be blotted out from the face of God. The results or the rewards of, of this confession and this repentance. There's more, verse number 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. I'm gonna call this number two, inward restoration. Inward restoration. There's spiritual cleansing, inward restoration. And, and what good, however, we might ask is a cleansed heart if we fail again tomorrow and again the next day and the next day. And the struggle of living life in this flesh is that we feel weak. Like Paul in Romans 7, we, we find ourselves doing what we shouldn't do or not doing what we should do over and over again, which is why I believe there in verse number 10, David is asking for a steadfast spirit following the cleansing of his heart. That's the stability and the strength of the inner man to stand and to walk in righteousness. But man's spiritual strength or personal strength, we sometimes call it willpower, isn't enough for us to have victory. No matter how disciplined you are in your life. So David asked for the continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see it there in verse 11. Now, remember, David witnessed what happened to Saul, his predecessor. 1 Samuel 16, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit troubled him. You remember how that the young shepherd boy, David, would come then and, then and minister to Saul on his, his harp and play for Saul. David's fear is that the Spirit of God would depart from David as it had departed from Saul. So it begs the question regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's my understanding that the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament ministered by visitation temporarily visiting men, enabling them for special service. On the other hand, in the New Testament, John 14, Jesus promised his disciples, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
So that today, for the New Testament believer, the Holy Spirit does not visit us on occasion, but rather is a permanent resident within us so that we, we don't need to ever make the statement or prayer, pray the prayer as David did, take not your Holy Spirit from me. For as Spirit-baptized believers in the body of Christ, we now have the gift of the Spirit permanently within us. And so we're absolved from this concern here, but the, the Spirit of God there and the results of David's confession, his repentance, this inward restoration is the joy of his of salvation. Verse number 12. Verse 12. And so I would, of course, then ask us again this evening, have you lost your joy? Have you lost the joy of the great salvation that we have in Christ. There are mo- so many Christians who have lost the joy. There's no joy in reading the scripture. There's no joy in assembling with God's people. There's no joy in singing the hymns. They're boring. They're slow. <laughs> There's no joy in praying. There's no joy in Christian fellowship or spiritual conversations. The joy is gone. Why is that? One explanation, one answer may be unconfessed sin. And I might just state it plainly to you. I've printed it for you there at the top of your notes. This would be my, my pastoral counsel to you this evening. You cannot experience the joy of your salvation and harbor your sin at the same time. Those things are mutually exclusive. It cannot happen. Of course, again, the promise of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and then we can pray with David in Psalm 51, verse number 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Stop there. Verses 16 and 17 are curious. I can't comment on on each part of the the psalm here for the the constraints of time this evening, but verses 16 and 17. I thought that God did desire sacrifices. This might be perplexing to us. God did desire sacrifices. However, there were no sacrifices for the crimes that David committed. They were capital crimes. They were punishable by capital punishment. The only acceptable sacrifice for David in this case was brokenness and contrition before a merciful God. And so you see, folks, it's not the external sacrifices of of some penance, some repayment, some some suffering or aesthetic practice, but rather it's the internal sacrifice of brokenness and contrition before God, for God gives grace to the humble. Turn your notes over. I've copied what Jonathan Edwards 
has written in his religious affections, I think he says it so well here. He says all gracious affections, this is for our purposes this evening, feelings and emotions and attitudes that are a sweet aroma to Christ. What is a sweet aroma to Christ? What sacrifices can we offer to God that he finds well-pleasing? They are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. And so that inward restoration comes when we present this broken, humble sacrifice to the Lord. But it leads then to number three, External praise. External praise. So I would say to us this evening that what we are reading of is is not an academic category of mercy and and grace and, and such. God's forgiveness is not just a theological construct, but when we exercise true biblical confession and brokenness and repentance, we experience God's forgiveness. We will explode with praise and worship. Look at verse number 13. Going back to verse 13, this is the motivation for evangelism. Look at verse 15. There's the exercise of praise. Look at verses 16 and 17 here. There's, there's almost a redefinition of worship so that the greatest worship, praise and worship service, might not be one of adoration but one of confession. It might not be one of boasting in God but of brokenness over our sin because this is what the Lord desires. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here on a Sunday evening. I know that among us here this evening are men and women, young people that are committed to their walk with the Lord. I know that I'm most likely speaking even here to the live stream as well as the the radio broadcast. Those that enjoy sweet fellowship with God, keeping nothing between you and, and the Savior, yet at the same time, This is a message, I think, that we need to rehearse over and over again in our walk with the Lord. Psalm 51 is not a private prayer for David alone. In fact, look back at that heading, at that superscription again, the inscription that is included with the psalm to the chief musician. What what is that about? This is intended for corporate use, for public use. This psalm can be a a model for ourselves personally, corporately, together, all of us, Psalm 51. I'd like to do this just as we conclude and wrap up. We read Psalm 51 earlier in our service. I've walked us through in, in very simplistic ways. I'd like to read it again, maybe now for the third time this evening, slowly, I want you to to muse, to meditate on this prayer of repentance, making application where it's necessary before the Lord. I'll pray and we can sing this hymn then another time so that in the space of this hour, we've reviewed this psalm maybe four or five times. Psalm 51, 
to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you as your fallen creation, yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so it's with courage, it's with boldness that we come to you, acknowledging our sin, thanking you, for your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace, your, your forgiveness. God, I pray that, that we will find rest and respite in you. And Lord, as we humbly come to you with brokenness and contrition in repentance, that you will restore to us joy, that you will cleanse and purify, and that we might praise you as we ought. Thank you, God, for looking, looking upon us, being mindful of us. Thank you for saving us, redeeming us, forgiving us, and loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.